You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined today by national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. And I'm Yvette. Thanks for listening. We hope you're into national security law history in a big way today. Yep, and thanks for tuning in. We're going to talk about very serious and historical detail about foreign interference, and I know we've talked about that before, but we're going to dive now even further into the Foreign Agents Registration Act and its very interesting history. And our guests today are two people who know this history best. For sure. We're really glad to have Bradley Hart back. He wrote a wonderful book we talked about before, Hitler's American Friends, which talks about the history of Hitler's efforts to prevent the United States from entering World War II. It's really nice to meet you in person. Yeah, thank you. Very glad to be here. All right, and who better to compliment Bradley than Katie Kedian, uh, who is the former chief and principal deputy chief of the section at the Department of, of Justice that investigates and prosecutes counterintelligence-related crimes including, of course, violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And she is now at Raytheon Company and also teaches counterintelligence law at GW, meaning George Washington, for our listeners far away, George Washington University Law School. Uh, She is an amazing woman and certainly a very accomplished prosecutor. Her bio will surprise you. Katie, I'm so glad you finally came in, and we're really happy you came. We're so happy you're here. Thank you, Elisa. I'm delighted to be here. So bios for our guests are going to be in the notes of the podcast, so we can jump right into it. Brad, can you help us set the stage in terms of the history um, before we turn to Katie on specific cases in the law? Exactly how did Hitler attempt to influence the United States to stay out of World War II? Yeah, this is a story that not a lot of Americans know, and it's incredibly important to the history of national security laws we're talking today, but also the history of the United States in this period. The Nazis actually created a sophisticated plan to try to manipulate American public opinion in this period. And one of the primary methods they used was employing agents that worked in the United States to influence both the popular press and politicians. And we'll Wait a minute, did you say the popular press? The popular press, yeah. That happened amazing. before? It did, it happened before in, in many similar ways to, to ways it might be happening again. Um, but this was a concerted effort, and what's really critical for Americans to understand is that this isn't something that necessarily changed that much over the years in terms of the tactics that people are employing. Wow. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a couple of different things. One of the key parts of Nazi ideology was, of course, anti-Semitism. And so the Nazis attempted to stir up anti-Semitic feeling and actually anti-Semitic violence in the United States through propaganda means. And so that became a way of simply dividing Americans against one another and trying to, as I put it in the book, sort of sap the American political will to do anything about what's going on in Nazi Germany in that period. So we have the sort of anti-Semitic prejudice on the one hand. We also have the Nazis really being clever in the way they're employing Americans' own isolationist leanings against the Roosevelt administration in this period. So isolationism is a really interesting phenomenon in American history. For most of history, we think most Americans were what we would call now isolationists. They wanted to simply go about their business in the United States without interfering too much in American foreign affairs. That changes really dramatically in 1917 when the U.S. goes into World War I and Woodrow Wilson essentially takes the U.S. into this faraway conflict. So when the World War I ends, a lot of Americans again look at that experience and say, this was a mistake. We should go back to our authentic roots of staying out of other countries' affairs. 
Um, throughout the 1920s, the U.S. was overwhelmingly isolationist. We have a series of administrations that put forth what are called neutrality bills, deliberately keeping the U.S. out of other countries' affairs. But in the 1930s, when the situation is escalating in, in Germany and Europe generally, um, the Nazis really see their opportunity to sap the American political will by playing upon this in some ways authentically American trait in that sense. So what they really employ is a two-track propaganda campaign, instigating this sort of anti-Semitic violence and these anti-Semitic feelings, and also just playing upon what a lot of people saw as the authentic sort of American view of foreign policy. Wow. That's uh, that's super disturbing. And just to recap bri briefly, so they used print media, you mentioned, um, but I believe they also used radio uh, which was popular at the time, did they not? Yeah, absolutely. So print media was in some ways the easier one for them to influence because there were many, many reporters and correspondents. And so the Nazis had a set of sympathetic correspondents they could rely on to write things that were in line with their objectives. So in some senses, um, mm, the easy... In, indeed, yeah. <laughs> one of the one of the cleverest techniques they use actually when the war starts is planting stories in the American press saying that the British are losing and the war has already been lost. And so the intention here is that the U.S shouldn't back the British or the or the allies at all because the war's already finished and that's just going to expose the US to risk and violence and, and death and all these things. So sort of attacking the British Empire becomes a key part of this campaign. Radio is a little more difficult for them actually. Um, they do try to manipulate radio news, but they also have sympathetic commentators on radio that are really useful for their cause. The most famous one is Father Charles Coughlin, who we think actually had the largest radio audience of all time. Starts out as a staunch supporter of President Roosevelt and then turns in a particularly insidious anti-Semitic direction in the mid-1930s. And the Nazis know that he's one of their great assets. There's actually a, a great quote I use in the book where the German foreign ministry considers backing Coughlin with sort of German money, money from the German embassy, um, but they decide not to because they think he's more effective if left alone. So they're very aware of what he's doing. They think that he's a great asset for them, but they don't want the potential of the money, money trail being traced back to them and undermining what he's doing. Wow. All right. So, Katie, in the run-up to the Second World War, what was the state of the law? Did we have um, – what were the tools that could be used to uh, punish foreign agents? Because I feel like most of the criminal statutes – are sort of post-World War II and post-Vietnam and post-Cointempro right, right. phenomena. Well, there, there weren't really any criminal statutes that, to, that you could use to punish foreign agents who weren't disclosing who their foreign government sponsors were. There was the Espionage Act of 1917. It was passed in 1917. But that criminalized conduct of those who were acting as what we think of as spies, right? People who were people who were gathering or providing national defense information to harm the United States or to help a foreign government. That's a different issue, right, than what Brad was talking about. People doing things like disseminating information information designed to influence the American public on behalf of a foreign government. And in some cases, right, trying to mask who they were doing that for. There wasn't really a statute to get at that. But there are two statutes that do bear some mention because they did deal with political speech. Um, one was actually an amendment to the Espionage Act called the Sedition Act. It was only in place for, oh, right, right. for a brief mm -hmm. period of time, right? It was only in place from uh, 1918 to 1921. And what it did was it criminalized false statements interfering with the military or promoting success of U.S. enemies. There's a, there's a famous Supreme Court case a lot of people know called Abrams v. United States that I teach in my counterintelligence class. That case involved the conviction of these Russian emigrants who were disseminating flyers that were critical of the United States government, and they were trying to persuade 
people in America to oppose U.S. war efforts in World War One. Um, it's interesting that the that Russian immigrants actually threw those pamphlets out of a window of a building in New York City. That was their way of disseminating wow. them. And then that other was the Twitter that was of the, the time. Twitter of the <laughs> time, exactly. Down yes. across the I mean, they, of they New also York. found other ways to disseminate them, sort of secretly around New York City. Um, and they signed the flyers. I think they were signed like the Rebels or something. Um, so they were convicted under the Sedition Act that was in place at that time. But it's you know interesting to note for the purposes of this podcast that the Sedition Act was repealed. And and think about why it was repealed, right? It criminalized the conduct of these actors, the words on the page of the materials that they disseminated. And that was viewed at the time even as being too restrictive of speech. And so so the Sedition Act was repealed. The other um, statute I just want to mention briefly is the Smith Act, also known as the Alien Registration Act of 1940. So so this is a little later, you know, Pharaoh's 1938, so this is two years later. Um, But the Smith Act made it a criminal offense to advocate the overthrow of government or to be a member of a group devoted to such advocacy. So that's just a, another statute that, that was in place around this time that dealt with sort of political speech. But, but this would have been sort of a response, wouldn't it have been, to the Bolshevik re- uh, Revolution and sort of the fear of communism. And uh, there was a belief, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Bradley, there was an actual belief among a lot of people that many of these groups, including the groups disseminating those flyers, we're actually seeking the violent overthrow of the United States government, too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the Smith Act is, is a direct response to that and is directly oriented towards communist groups, actually, yeah. Right, and, and the belief in America was uh, that the communist threat, right, was really a, a threat to national sovereignty. Wow. And during that time, the Germans were able to compromise several members of Congress, if that's correct. So there was a significant influence on high up levers of U.S. power. Absolutely. This is actually one of the most insidious plots that the Germans launched in this period and revolves around a a actually known propagandist even in that period named George Sylvester Virak. And Virak is one of the, in some ways, most troubling figures I talk about in the book and and that sort of emerges in this period. He, in the First World War, had been a German propagandist. He had actually disseminated flyers similar to what we were talking about a moment ago, um, and also sort of high-end journals. And what's interesting is that Virak is really successful in what I'm about to describe because he's so well-connected. He actually knows former President Teddy Roosevelt in an earlier period, um, corresponds with him. He knows Sigmund Freud. He sort of is in the in the these intellect this great intellectual milieu and sees himself as as a poet um, and this sort of creative writer. He writes a few novels. Um, Party gadfly, as everybody. Yeah, I mean, Virak the Forrest is, Grunt Gump of his time. He, he sort of is. I mean, he seems to be in every room in this period. And so it's sort of <laughs> this guy's certainly a, a social climber um, to some extent. Um, and the rumor is that he's actually an illegitimate child or grandchild of the Kaiser. So he's this sort of mystique around him, too, that's almost... It sounds you know, like a rumor he started. It could, it could indeed be, <laughs> yes, we don't really know. Um, but Virak, in, in 1933, when Hitler takes power, becomes convinced that Hitler is the savior of Germany. Um, Virak, we should mention, is an American citizen. Um, he, I think, also enjoys German citizenship, but he certainly is an American citizen because that becomes important later on. Um, but Virak relate, or believes that Hitler is this sort of savior of Germany, and so he gets the German foreign ministry's permission to run a propaganda campaign in the U.S. What Virak then attempts to do is the really troubling part. He actually approaches a senator on Capitol Hill named Ernest Lundin, who's a senator from Minnesota, a uh, farmer labor senator, the last farmer labor senator at that period. 
And he, he offers to do research for him um, and join his research staff. And then that sort of escalates into writing speeches for Lundeen, which then escalates into inserting those speeches in the congressional record for Lundeen, mm-hmm. and then escalates into mailing out those speeches mm-hmm. from the congressional record using congressional franking privilege. So Lundeen becomes Virek's entry point into the literal corridors of power, and then Lundeen introduces him to a bunch of his fellow isolationist members of Congress. And so this ends up ensnaring, we think, about two dozen members of both the House and the Senate, some of whom were very knowledgeable and complicit about what Virek was doing, some of whom simply had their franked envelopes acquired, and so it's sort of unclear still how aware they were. Um, but this scandal eventually emerged because it was detected by British counterintelligence rather than American counterintelligence in this period, um, and the British drop it on the FBI's lap. And so Virek's office that he's working out of on Capitol Hill gets raided. He ends up being indicted for a series of things. Uh, interestingly, he is indicted under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and that case is knocked down in the Supreme Court. So he's initially convicted for failing to register. The Supreme Court knocks it or uh, knocks down his conviction because Farah was not actually in effect when he was doing a lot of these activities. Ah, so, so the old ex post facto argument, huh? Yeah, yeah ex post facto, exactly. And so he ends up being convicted for other things. He sits sits out a number of years in uh, federal prison as a result of his activities. But it's interesting that he's really the first test case of this new legislation. And there's some suggestion in in what. I've been researching that he's really the example they have in mind when they're crafting this legislation because there are certainly people who are work operating on Capitol Hill on his model, even maybe more openly, um, that the government is very concerned about. And so the other thing to mention here is that there are people who are operating outside of government who are mailing out flyers and the things that we've been talking about. Um, Virek also has a publishing company that he buys so he can publish his own books and disseminate them. So this is a guy who really amassed a pretty impressive propaganda operation. So it's like developing all the sock puppets and bot accounts and everything else. So Katie, is that about right? Is that kind of how it went? Yeah, I think that that really is a, a very good summary. I mean, the other thing that's going on here, in addition to the Nazi threat, right, is the ongoing communist threat right. that we had talked about earlier, right? There's the Red Scare in the world, build up to World War I, um, and the Sedition Act I mentioned earlier was part of that. Uh, but but then in World War II, the build up then, there, there's again this worry of a threat from inside on the communism. So so Varick and his associates, that, that, that certainly is part of it. But then there's also, uh, I think Congress was concerned still about the communist threat. And, and of course, the British were manipulating as well, right? And so I don't know how much that actually played into the development of Farah, but there was certainly an awareness, too, that 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 was going on. That's fascinating. Okay, Um, let's pivot to some of the more positive developments because we could talk about this period of history almost forever. Um, It's a fascinating period of time. There were multiple convictions of individuals during this time, perhaps, um, and and in later times, uh, I believe later dates than we're referring to right now, including Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who for many years were believed to be not guilty, right? Somehow not targeted for FARA, but thought to be involved in espionage. And then, of course, the Venona files were made available to the public, and that was confirmed to actually be true, kind of a shock. But pivoting back to FARA, Let's talk about some of the more positive developments that came from these terrible things. These fans of Hitler, of course, were um, uh, unpleasantly able to organize and hold uh, rallies, um, one of which has become the subject of an Oscar-nominated film, which we will uh, hyperlink in the notes. It's called A Night uh, Night at the Garden, which refers to the big big rally at Madison Square Garden that you reference in your book, Bradley. Um, congressmen were compromised. This must have seemed very, very dark. And I know we're right now at a time where there's a lot of feeling on both sides that we've, you know, we've hit some sort of nadir. We're at the bottom. 
Um, and uh, it must have seemed at the time to them, you know, hopeless, like America was heading in the wrong direction. And then into the fray walk these two important figures, Martin Dias and then a guy named O. John Rogge. Who were these men? Yeah, so these are, are really two of the most interesting people I talk about in the book. So Martin Dies is a congressman from Texas. He becomes, in 1938, the chairman of what will become the House on American Activities Committee. So HUAC for short. Uh, becomes a very controversial figure later on because of his target, actually, of, of the left, and particularly labor unions. But initially, Dies is interested in the threat posed by Nazism. And so he begins holding hearings on Capitol Hill and calls the leaders of these organizations. So in 1939, the rally you're referring to is done by the German-American boot and its leader, Fritz Kuhn, uh, it becomes this really front-page moment across the country because there are more protesters there than there are actually members of the Bund. There's violence that emerges. There's thousands of New York City police officers that get involved in scuffles and things like that. It's a fantastic film. I highly recommend mm -hmm. it. Um, but this is really front-page news across the country, and this puts a huge amount of pressure on members of Congress to actually investigate. And so Dye starts calling these figures before him. Um, we should say he actually had called Bund members prior to this, too. Uh, but he begins really exposing through his reports what's going on with these organizations, particularly looking at whether they are taking money from the German government. And so there is this sort of emphasis in a, in a far related way about where is the funding coming from mm -hmm. for this. It's not right. the First Amendment issues. It's where's the backing actually coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and so Dye's committee actually doesn't doesn't convict that many people. Um, there are some people that go to prison directly because of what he does. But in some ways, he's more effective in the public sphere. He's more effective in, in helping shape public opinion. So he's really this important figure, again, becomes very controversial later on. Uh, but in this period, is is sort of one of the most important investigatory figures. Ojan Roga sort of picks up that mantle. So Roga had been a rising star in the DOJ for years. He had prosecuted some radical followers of Father Coughlin um, called the, the Christian Front. Um, or they're members of the Christian Front. They were nicknamed the Brooklyn Boys, but these were a series of former National Guard members who acquired weapons and explosives, supposedly with the goal of taking over the Federal Reserve in New York and overthrowing the U.S. government, <laughs> ultimately. It was a pretty far-fetched plot, um, to put it mildly, but this was, again, front-page news. And so Roga goes out to New York, prosecutes these guys actually unsuccessfully, but in the course of that, creates a reputation for himself as a rabid anti-communist. So to make a long story short, then he gets involved in something called the sedition trial, where the government tries to try a bunch of pretty vocal anti-Semites and Nazi supporters. That actually fails as well. But in the course of that, Roga gets a letter from an army captain in Germany who has uncovered evidence about what the Germans have actually been doing in the United States. So he goes off to Germany, interviews Hermann Goering, other surviving Nazis, puts together this incredible DOJ report, which then gets classified and buried for years. And so that is referred to as the German It's called the official report. German report, official yes. German it, it will eventually be published in the early 1960s, after decades of Roga mm -hmm. petitioning the DOJ and, the, and various administrations to release it. Um, fantastic read for any listener out there, uh, but very interesting. Mm -hmm. So, Katie, why don't you talk for a minute? To, he's talking about a bunch of sedition cases that were prosecuted during that time. Are those different from the ones that you've just referenced? Yeah, they they are um, slightly later, right? And then the Dennis case, it's interesting because it does uphold yeah. the constitutionality of the Smith Act, which is interesting because the Sedition Act, you know, of 1918, the Amendment to the Espionage Act, had been repealed because it was too restrictive. And yeah. yet the Smith Act, they uphold the constitutionality in Dennis, which was quite a surprise to a lot of people. And it gets struck down later, like not well, that long it, ago. Well, it so. doesn't technically get struck down. What happens is Yates, the Yates, there's a Supreme Court case, Yates, that then, you know, pulls the guts out of the Dennis 
case upholding the constitutionality, yeah, okay. but doesn't actually say this is unconstitutional. It just sort of undercuts the, the ruling in Dennis. So the Smith Act technically is still on the books. Really? Wow. Um, so uh, Bradley, as a historian, do you have an opinion about what the main event was that prompted the passage of FARA? And Katie, from a lawyer's perspective, what do you see as the main new items that motivated Congress to act? I think from the historical side, it's the the rising awareness in 1937-38 that this is a problem, that there are agents who are operating with impunity and fully legally, as we said earlier, that are actually influencing American public opinion. The other part we haven't mentioned is that this is a period where you have a lot of organizations being founded that have the same objective. So the German government puts together what's called the German Tourist Information Bureau, which sounds very <laughs> innocuous and sounds like it's setting up vacations. Yeah. In fact, this is a propaganda wing, right? And, and the vacations there, they're actually enticing people to go on are also propaganda because they're heavily stage managed. And so in some ways, the organizations themselves are more troubling than the individuals because the government comes to begin concerned. And we should say it's John W. McCormack, future Speaker of the House, that introduces FARA originally. Um, And he says... It's often called the McCormack Act. It is, indeed, yeah. Um, And very appropriately so, of course. And I think what's interesting about that is that when he's introducing it, um, he says something on the floor about how this act is designed to label propaganda as we do poison. So there's this almost idea of nutritionally labeling what Americans are consuming Uh in that sense. Um, But I think a lot of it has to do with these organizations that are both from the left and the right, as we said. The Soviets are doing the same thing, founding these bureaus that entice people to vacation in the Soviet Union and things like that. And this is all (laughs) part of a wider propaganda operation. It seems outlandish today, but these were actually quite popular trips and apparently very influential. If you look at accounts of people that travel in the Third Reich in this period, their reviews are overwhelmingly positive. There's been some recent historical works on this, but people are impressed by what they see, in part because they're being exposed to a a strict diet of propaganda. It really sounds like what they're doing these days in North Korea, right, where people will, journalists will go and travel, and we have the benefit of these kinds of historical backgrounds to know that, oh, this is clearly stage managed and this propaganda, and the journalists will come back and write I was exposed to this whole propaganda trip, but it sounds exactly like the things that I read um, about North Korea. Absolutely. It's a very, very similar situation, I think. Um, And one thing I talk about in the book, actually, too, that we haven't quite seen from the North Koreans yet, but something to keep an eye on, is their enticing of foreign exchange students from the United States. So the Nazis are very adept at this. They invite university students from Ivy League universities, from Stanford, and these students go over, and you can actually look these up in student newspapers, overwhelmingly positive accounts of their experiences in the Third Reich. But in your book, I think a big hook for that was a lot of these people had, like, German backgrounds, so it made a lot more sense. I think it would be a little tougher for North Korea to kind of do the same thing, but, you know... But other countries, perhaps. Other countries, you know, perhaps. Right, would. and I think we, we see that a little bit with the Chinese threat mm-hmm. um, and similar, uh, similar uh, tradecraft, I guess, from there. Um, your question about what kind of motivated them to act, I mean, Bradley, I think, hit most of the points, but there was a real perceived threat from the legislators. They are seeing, you know, the legislators were seeing this is foreign influence that is masked from the American public, and the American public needs to know needs to know who is behind this. But remember, right, the Sedition Act I talked about had been repealed. And so as they're looking at what they can possibly do, they're also trying very hard to make sure that they stay within constitutional bounds, right? They don't want to craft something that that exceeds uh, constitutionality and ends up up being repealed. Um, they, They wanted to figure out a way 
to let people keep intending what they want to say or let these organizations go ahead and, you know, establish themselves here as long as it was clear to everybody who the original source was behind it. Thank you for tuning in to National Security Law Today. We're going to end this episode here, but join us again next week for the continuation of our conversation with Bradley Hart and Katie Kedian about foreign influence and FARA. You can find links to the Black Letter Law, articles, and documentaries that we've referenced today at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or in the notes to this podcast. You can also find more information about the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security online. On March 21st, please join us with Avril Haynes, former Deputy National Security Advisor, at a luncheon event in downtown D.C. Register and find out more information on our website. You can also drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on our Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.